Welcome to Neurosalience, the OHBM podcast. Welcome to the Organization for Human Brain Mapping Neurosalience podcast. I'm your host, Peter Bandatini. Here, I interview brain scientists and discuss their work, as well as the latest advances and challenges in the entire field of brain mapping. My guest today is Professor Arno Villringer. He is the Director of the Department of Neurology at the Max Planck Institute for Human Cognitive and Brain Scientists in Leipzig. He's also the Director of the Department of Cognitive Neurology at Leipzig University Hospital and Professor of Cognitive Neurology at Leipzig University. In addition, He's director of the Mind Brain Institute, Berlin School of Mind and Brain. Arno received his MD in 1984 from Albert Ludwig University in Freiburg and did a short but highly impactful fellowship at the MGH NMR Center in Boston. From 1986 to 93, he was in Munich at the Ludwig Maximilian University Department of Neurology. And from 93 to 2007, he was at Charita, Charity University uh, Medicine in Berlin in the Department of Neurology, working up to vice chairman. Finally, in 2007, he took his primary role as director of the Department of Neurology at Max Planck Institute for Human Cognitive and Brain Sciences in Leipzig. Arno is a luminary figure in the, in the field of brain imaging starting with his pioneering work on developing susceptibility contrasts for imaging perfusion while he was doing his fellowship at MGH, and then his pioneering work on developing near-infrared spectroscopy, and then using this approach to help validate fMRI contrasts, as well as shed some light on it. Since then, he's been working on a wide range of topics, falling into the categories of either methods development or mind-body interactions. He's played a major role in many insightful studies that include those using simultaneous EEG and fMRI and looking at neuromodulation, brain plasticity, subliminal stimulation and processing, as well as resting state fMRI. He's been perfectly positioned over the years and extremely active, not only to uh, add to cutting edge methods and understanding of the brain, but to carry these over into eventual clinical practice. In this conversation, we cover so many things and the discussion is far reaching and goes into depth at sometimes, but is uh, really stimulating. So I hope you enjoy it. All right, Arno, Arno Villringer, Professor Arno, Arno Villringer, uh, thanks, for, thanks for coming on. Uh, it's, really, it's really wonderful to talk to you and it's great to see that you're doing well. It's wonderful to have a chance to sort of visit a little bit of your research since it's been so, I mean, you're a neurologist and you're director of, uh, of the uh, Max Planck, uh, of the neurology department in the Max Planck Institute for Human Cognitive and Brain Sciences. And so I, I've just been amazed with the, not only the, the, the depth of your research, but also the, the breadth of it. Uh, you've been covering everything from methods to clinical applications and everything in between. So, so with that, thanks for visiting. Thanks for coming on. Thank you very much for having me. It's a great pleasure. So what I, I've known you for, you know, I think 
almost 30 years, I've uh, known of your work. And, and uh, so when you started, you were, you were mostly interested, you got your medical degree and then, but then you also got into research. So what, uh, what made you interested in, in doing research along with uh, medicine? Yeah, I, as you said, I studied medicine in Freiburg. I did a, my thesis, my medical thesis was in the, in the molecular biology lab. And I realized that doing wet lab work and combining it with the clinic may be too far-fetched. And so I thought about doing something in patients uh, and more on a systems level. And I mean, at the time, uh, NMR was a, a new technology. So, yeah. so actually my thesis supervisor, I remember, uh, so this was, I was like 21 or something when I did it. You, in Germany, you do the medical thesis in parallel to the medical studies. So I was in the lab for several years wow. and my thesis supervisor, actually, he was a chemist originally and he had done NMR spectroscopy. And, you know, he had known these big vertical magnets where you put in a tiny probe. And I remember in our weekly meetings that we had when he was presenting the newest literature in something like 1982, he was saying, incredible. Now they are putting humans in these, <laughs> in these magnets. He couldn't believe it. No? Yeah. And, and so, but uh, several years later, it was like the upcoming technology and uh, and actually, I was intrigued by by the possibility of doing in vivo biochemistry. So so um, having done molecular biology, biochemistry, I thought, oh, uh, you can measure. I did, you know, I saw this spectroscopy data. I thought, oh, you can look at uh, lactate and maybe neurotransmitters or whatever. Yeah. And so so uh, I kind of came in the end, to, I, I, won a, I, won a, I won a stipend uh, by the German Research Foundation. Yep. Uh, actually, this was at the time an easy thing. So I sometimes show this to my, <laughs> to my PhD candidates. Ba basically, my application for uh, one year, nice stipend, well-funded, consisted of one page, basically saying I'm Arno Fillinger and I would like to do research on <laughs> NMR, and I would like to do it in America. <laughs> and I, okay, the, uh, one has to say the idea was I already had a job in Munich for a residency, and this guy, my future boss, just started a big program, and so the German funding organization likes to send future co-workers somewhere else to learn something yes yes and uh and so uh and so i had i got this grant proposal or this grant easily yeah and then i went to to boston yeah and actually uh i remember that the idea was to do lactate imaging oh really lactate okay. imaging of the human brain in 1985 <laughs> so it was quite <laughs> and uh and I sometimes make fun of Bruce and Tom Brady, who were my Bruce Rosen, and Tom, because uh, I met Tom Brady at a conference in in, in Switzerland, and uh, Bruce had just developed this Dixon uh, 
shift imaging method yes. where you can do them. And it was fantastic. Huh? Yeah. And so the hopes were, oh, this would immediately work. And I remember they, um, uh, in 1984 or something, 83, Tom Brady told me, you have to come fast because it will be done very soon. <laughs> <laughs> so when you can't, but there will be new, there will be new other things, no? yeah. And then it then I came to Boston, uh, MGH, and having a great time. Uh, and you know, for uh, at the time, I'd say that the difference between doing research in or working in general in the U.S. versus Germany was even much bigger than than today. Oh really? Oh yeah. Oh yeah. It was a big. Okay, I mean, I came as a student, basically, so it was, a, but but the entire atmosphere, the also the collaborative atmosphere, uh, was much different than than I actually also later learned it in Germany. Eh? So yeah. I mean, in yeah. Germany later, uh, the radiologist said, "But you are doing neurology, so you cannot do NMR research." <laughs> so so it was very siloed. Yeah. Okay. So that's has also changed now, but yeah, but. Uh, so it was really a revelation, and I learned a lot from from the attitude, doing things fast, uh, and and I also uh, tried to do um, uh, lactate spectroscopy at least in, in 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 animals. Yeah, yeah. But it was very. It's very hard. Difficult. Yeah. Hard. <laughs> I mean, and, and we're still struggling with doing spectroscopy. Well, yes, this, yes, this sensitivity. And, and it's interesting that you mentioned the Dixon technique, because obviously it works really well for fat because it's far enough away, but, you know, isolating these, these specific chemical shifts that are closer in frequencies, yeah, it's tough. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, it was a cool idea. And, and then, of course, the question is whether it would work for, for such a low concentration molecule with this small shift. Yes. And, uh, but I was, you know, I was there to learn also. Yeah, uh, and so I was working with different people. I was, uh, and I, uh, and since I had time, uh, I was also running this at the time high field 1.4 Tesla <laughs> <laughs> animal scanner. Yes, yeah. <laughs> and right. and so I did all kind of things, uh, and and so I did, for example, uh, was involved in, you know, just helping out with perfusion imaging of the liver. Okay. And okay. Uh, based on agents that Wendy Laufer was developing at the time. Yes. New contrast agents. And, uh, and at some point, I remember I just used the wrong pulse sequence. <laughs> Instead of a T1 weighted pulse sequence, because these were T1 agents. Yes. Yes. I used a T2 pulse sequence. <laughs> and all of a sudden, there was this massive effect. That's Signal going so down. Discovering that it's a susceptibility contrast is useful yes, as well. Yes. <laughs> and 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 so, and then I thought, wow, uh, if this is a mechanism, maybe it works also in the only organ where I'm really interested in, namely the brain. <laughs> so and that's actually, yeah, that's. I mean, just to pause there for a second. I mean, this is really. I don't think. I think it's important to let people know that. You know, you, and and I definitely talk about it here. Is that you 
that that very for those first susceptibility experiments in the in the brain are are like the precursors to you know what we're doing clinically as far as uh, well actually perfusion imaging also looks at you know obviously the T1 effect but also some use the bold effect or not bold effect uh, T2 star effect with gadolinium yeah, to, yeah. to measure perfusion and so you were the yeah. first you know one of the first people if not the first doing that yeah so yeah i mean there were some people in germany uh, yeah and from yeah. also working yeah similar things but yeah they did it later but published at the same time but you were using line scanning you couldn't even image uh, actually 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 the story goes like this i did i first i did i, I remember i in injected a massive dose and i saw it in an image so i uh, then thought maybe uh, I need a faster temporal resolution. And I mean, I'm a medical person, so I'm not the guy who, who I mean, Python didn't exist at the time, but who, who learned programming in, in during my studies. But yeah. at least this kind of pulse sequence programming, I, I could, well, I, well, quite mighty, so it was not a long. And so I, then I uh, did this line scanning, a double slice, was a double slice selective uh, pulse sequence. And so I had a, uh, which was at the time quite spectacular, a one second temporal resolution, and then one could see it. Huh? That's that's incredible. And I remember I remember studying those papers, uh, you know, after when 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 bold contrast came along. And I remember you had probably one of the first. I mean, there was a person Fizel, I guess, who was there who developed the real. I mean, the susceptibility model a little bit more. But but you had you know you had a nice layout of susceptibility, bulk susceptibility effects in your yeah, paper, yeah. and it was. It was great, and then obviously Bruce, uh, you know, also continued on with that, and and um... and Jack Bellivo, not to forget late Jack. Yes, yes. Uh, so Jack actually, and this is actually Jack, basically he took over my project when I went back to Germany, and he in nineteen eighty five or six was saying, I remember that something like, I will make. The visual cortex lightening up with this. I will make pet out of this. That's cool. And you know, in his first, in his the first fMRI paper, which is not a bolt, but which is using bolus. Huh? Yes. He uh, basically did it. Huh? Yes. Five years later. Huh? So, in, uh, I mean, uh, of course, there was a lot of work to be done, and and Bruce was supervising him. It was a lot of, um, yeah, effort, yeah. but. Uh, yeah. Yeah, that's actually, so yeah, Jack actually, that's right, in 1991, he published that paper, and right, that's the first, that's the first functional MRI paper before yes, Bold came yes. along, and, and then quickly Bold came along, and so, and that yes. must have been exciting. I mean, I remember probably when you were doing susceptibility contrast, it's, what's really interesting to me is that the field knew that hemoglobin was paramagnetic when it, you know, it, it changed its susceptibility with oxygenation or not, but they always... You know, this is sort of how things happen. This is why what makes MRI so exciting is that, you know, people initially think, oh, well, maybe, you know, maybe it's not enough, maybe. And, and then you, it took like Ken Kwong to just, uh, to just try it. And, uh, and so what was your, and then when you first saw it, that, I think you were back in Germany by the time, you know, Bold came along. Oh, yes. Uh, it's yeah. also, I remember quite vividly. So I was back in Germany and I, I mean, I was trained, I was sent by kind of the, German funding organization to learn about MRI. Yeah. But back in Germany, at least in the first years, I could do little MRI because MRI is radiology and I was in <laughs> neurology. <laughs> <laughs> so we did some, we did some work together. Uh, but 
uh, I, I remember, for example, uh, uh, that we did some animal work in, in, in the clinical MRI scanner. And, at, and obviously this radiologist, the head of the department, he had a monitor to supervise every scanner in his office. Wow. Wow. And I mean, at the time, we were mostly CT scanner. And I remember that he, there was an emergency call to, to, to my partner, a radiologist. His boss was saying, what are you doing? What, what, who is this patient? <laughs> <laughs> There's a neurologist on my scanner. <laughs> yeah, that's so, so strange. That was a little scandal, but yeah, but what I did then, and in retrospect, I think for my yeah, for my career it was good in a way. Yeah. Uh, so what uh, I, I had to do something else. So I did basically do optical work. And and the link was the following. Um at the end of my time in Boston, I we had played with perfusion and CO2. Yeah. And I remember I did some CO2, one or two CO2 animals, and the effect was dramatic. Yeah. And from this very pilot experiment in Boston, I concluded, actually wrongly, but I concluded that obviously there must be a massive effect on the capillary level, uh, and and you look in the literature, and it says yes, there's capillary recruitment, capillaries open and close. Yeah. And so and so back in Germany in Munich, uh, I did animal experiments in the rat. We were studying uh, microcirculation, uh, but with with uh, like laser Doppler flowmetry and things like that. Yeah. But then I came across um, the development of confocal microscopes and later dual. And so uh, we had the idea to use the confocal microscope in vivo. We have actually the first ever to do in vivo confocal microscopy. Wow. And okay. so my idea was to confirm the existence of capillary recruitment. Okay, okay. And, and this is actually, 1994, about 1994. Yes, yes. But actually, yeah. yeah, 1994. And actually, we found the opposite. We found, I mean, we found the dilation of capillaries, which was which was not known. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but the capillaries never completely open and closed. They were, I mean, there was a relative recruitment in terms of many more and a widening of capillaries. And yeah. uh, in some capillaries, uh, the corpuscular flow, the flow of of hemoglobin would of of erythrocytes would stop. Yes. But there was always perfusion. Interesting. And. And then coming to the bold signal, we also did this, as I said, laser Doppler. And, and uh, so we, with the laser Doppler, we had a good temporal resolution. And we were looking at the blood flow response to viscous stimulation. Okay, okay. All right. And, and so, uh, and this, of course, uh, and at the time, Jack Bellibo just had, you know, developed, uh, had this science paper. And I remember at some point, for some reason, I had a phone call with, with Bruce Rosen. Okay. And and then I told him proudly, I said, you know, we are doing, we are doing now uh, uh, studies on the blood flow response with a one second resolution in rats. And Bruce was saying, that's interesting. We are doing this now in humans. <laughs> <laughs> there's, we have, there's a guy, he said, you might not know him yet. Uh, 
His name is Ken Kwong. <laughs> <laughs> and that's how Great. I learned about uh, about uh, the Bolt. Uh, oh, that is so, that's interesting. I didn't know that you were already gone and then it, it, then they started doing this. That's, that's interesting. That's interesting. Yes. And so, but I mean, your work though, you know, it's interesting. It worked out really well because, you know, I think, you know, you, I think collaborating with, I remember uh, Ulrich Darnigal and uh, just actually, uh, you know, it complemented it perfectly. Sort of, you know, people looked, saw bold effects. They didn't know what to think of it, how to really, if it's, uh, you know, what sort of connection with neural activity. And then, and then your group was sort of leading the way in terms of just delving into, uh, you know, with this optical signal that has yes. correlates to bold, uh, that there's, you know, you can modulate it. There's all kinds of interesting things you can do. And there, there's, it's highly related to neural activity. Yeah. So it was kind of the physiological basis, working on the physiological basis. Yeah. Uh, and so I remember then there was this, still for me today, one of the most impressive meetings I ever attended, and you must have been there too, I'm sure you were there, uh, at, this was in a DC hotel. Yeah. Yep. Like Ritz-Carlton. When, when, when some people uh, were fighting each other strongly. <laughs> yes. Yeah, I remember that. That was like the first sort of like a quick workshop on it, but it turned out to be amazing. Yeah. Yes, on, yeah. And that, that's where Bob Turner wanted to name fMRI MRFN, but uh, that didn't catch on. So, I mean, there's all kinds of, I mean, in the, in the science. This I didn't know. Right? This detail yeah. I didn't know. <laughs> and abstract, he's like, let's name it this. <laughs> but, yeah. uh, and I had actually then I had, a, I had a, some kind of poster on like the basis of, of neurovascular coupling or something. Yeah? Yes. So, which was kind of, uh, uh, you know, a basic neurophysiology. Yeah. Actually, actually, at the time, I mean, the 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 concept of neurovascular coupling is is known for. I mean, you always quote Sherrington, 1890. Yeah? Yes. But strangely, uh, I remember somebody saying, "Why do you call it neurovascular coupling? Do you use a strange word?" And uh, and I thought it's logical. And later. For some reason, I wanted to know who has kind of coined the term neurovascular coupling. Yeah. And I looked at PubMed, and actually, it was us. <laughs> it was... <laughs> That's great. <laughs> so at least in PubMed, I mean, the first neurovascular is on something different. It's like on, on, on. Uh, I think, uh, vicinity of vessels to neural structures, but then. In a book, did you attend that workshop? In a, when we published a book uh, on uh, on optical imaging, basically. But oh in, yes, in, yeah. in that book, it, in the first one, I think, uh, I had an article, and Uli Dernagel had an article, and we both have like neurovascular coupling in the name, and that's <laughs> the first it was ever mentioned. <laughs> that's interesting. Okay, so it's, okay. it's a nice. I mean, the concept, of course, is relevant, and we, we didn't invent the concept, but it's nice. Uh, yeah, yeah, and you, I remember, you know, there were so many debates, and, and you know, it's interesting too. I mean, certain things have changed a lot in fMRI, certain things haven't, and and even though there's been a ton of work, a ton of modeling, a lot of really, really nice experimental work from your group and other groups, it's still a little bit. I mean, yeah, we can just delve into that as well, a little bit uh, before we get into other things uh, of a contra I mean, people don't completely understand 
you know, what are the mediators for, for vasodilation with activation? Yeah. You know, um, uh, there could be many. And, and, and actually, right, even in the paper that you recently, uh, or not too recently, but you still, still say, you know, there's, you know, there's this mismatch, this overabundance of oxygenation of, of, and flow relative to neural activity. You know, it's, there's different models. There's either, uh, you know, for metabolic uh, needs, uh, limited oxygen diffusion, and then finally, uh, you know, direct neuro neurogenic sort of uh, uh, vasodilation as well. And it's, the, the answer is, as far as I know, is just, it could be all of these in different amounts, depending, what, what do you think is the current state of our understanding as far as that's concerned? Yeah. I have to confess that I, I mean, I don't do experiments in this. Yeah. So maybe there are some new, there are new findings that I, yeah. so yeah. my, so first of all, I think in terms of the mediators, yeah. I mean, we, were, we were working at the time, we were NO and stuff. Yeah. I think there is a multitude of mediators uh, and I think for such a fundamental process, it's very important that this is the case. And so it's a, I think it's a deliberate of evolution kind of redundancy of, of mechanisms. Yes. I yes. also think, I'm pretty sure that there is kind of a feed forward mechanism, yeah. which basically gives kind of a, which is fast, which could go via interneurons or also an, or a fast signal to the vessel, yeah. which dilates which is overshooting. And then there are several medias, mediators that are like adenosine, pH, lactate, whatever, uh, that do the fine adjusting. Yeah. So that, and I mean, what now does precisely what? And it may also be different between different brain regions, which makes sense. Yeah. Uh, or different, different, different neurons. Are yeah. dominant in other different brain regions. Now, uh, the weighing... Um, difficult to say. And also, there's still a controversy about whether it actually starts in the capillary and yeah. goes upward. Yes. Or whether it starts in the in, in, in the arterial. Yeah. I, to be honest, I, I was quite convinced by the data that it starts kind of uh, uh, in the capillary and then moves upwards. Words, makes back to me a lot of sense. Huh? Yeah. But, yeah. But I would not say that I'm the ultimate expert now. Yeah. 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 And I don't think actually, I think even the experts, um, you know, I think they're, they're sort of still, you know, trying to figure it out as well. And there's other mm -hmm. things that I think are still unresolved, like, uh, you know, the, the, the nonlinearity of bold, for instance, um, you know, the, what's what sort of, in, it's sort of on my mind now, because I've been seeing so many examples, even with Logothetis's paper, you know, he shows that, yes, it's linear within a certain regime of activation, but like you increase intensity, it goes up linearly, but then it's, it seems like it's highly, Bold overrepresents neural activity at very weak or very brief activations, which, which could imply there's some, you know, there's less control. It's like on off uh, with the vascularity uh, at the very low levels. So maybe bold, it's a good thing that bold increases the sensitivity, but it's sort of nonlinear. There's all kinds of things like that that are still ongoing and trying, we're trying to figure yeah. out. But, um, yeah, no, it, um, and, and yeah, and I think, but early on, I remember, you know, I think Uli uh, uh, Darnigal was the first person to maybe coin the term of like watering, watering the whole garden. That was Bob Turner. That was, oh, that was Bob, Bob Turner. Turner. Okay, all right, that was yes. Bob Turner. That was a, yeah, <laughs> yeah. I don't. I'm not sure. I'm even today. I'm not hundred percent sure whether I agree. Huh? Yeah. So yeah. Uh, I mean, <laughs> of, or maybe it's it's the question to what extent. No? Right. Uh, that's. I mean. 
in terms of overshoot, that it's what I just said in the initial response, that is not the same. It's like more quantitatively to the same area. Yes. Uh, at least on in the in the mid middle time or middle time range, I would think that the neovascular coupling is quite precise. Yes. So yes. There, I would not think that that there is too much bordering around. I mean, obviously, uh, it coupling cannot be much better than the density of capillaries. So yeah. that's a limitation. But that's a. But uh, Bob was clearly thinking of a wider. Uh, uh, watering. No? Yeah, and that was sort of potentially to explain this overabundance because you, if yes. you don't have that much control, then you'd have overabundance because those those neurons aren't active. And so, but I think that right. I think that that theory has sort of been, as you say, um, uh, countered by other other models. Or more refined. Yeah, more refined. Right. Um, <laughs> yeah, and 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 it's fun because that's actually what's what's cool about doing fMRI methodology is that you can actually delve into that. You can delve into applications. And um, all right, so so you know we covered your early work in perfusion. We covered uh, optical imaging, um, and uh, a little bit. But uh, what what was I remember talking to you in the early two thousands, and and you had just started work on on looking at EEG and 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 correlating that with optical imaging, or then or then fMRI bold as well uh, with EEG, and. Uh, do you want to talk a little bit about that? Because I think actually it's really relevant today as well, and it's becoming more interesting, uh, the yeah. story. Or maybe, I mean, if you go chronologically, so we forgot near-infrared spectroscopy. Oh, uh, right, of course, of course. Near-infrared, near yeah, I, I, I mentally sort of combined optical, but yeah, near-infrared spectroscopy, you were the pioneer in that as well. That was like, uh, we did optical imaging in, in, with confocal, and then yes. uh, the question was, uh, now, is there also an optical analog of, of fMRI, basically? Yeah? Yes, yes, yes. And, uh, and that was then the idea of doing it, trying it in humans, no? Right. And uh, it quite surprised, I mean, we, we, we didn't believe our own results in the beginning, but uh, it quite surprisingly worked. And that was for a long time, until I had, again, access to real fMRI. <laughs> <laughs> And where were you working? You were in Berlin at the. You were in. Uh, this Berlin? was just at a transition. So we got we, we did the initial work I did in in Munich, and okay. then I got a major grant for this. Uh, it's like the equivalent of a starting grant on the German level. Okay. Uh, and uh, and with this we 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 continued that work in Berlin. Okay. And uh, try to validating it. Actually, uh, the question is what validates what uh, was a bit complicated. So we did uh, with Jens Frams group a, 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 a simultaneous NIRS fMRI study. Yes, okay. And uh, of course, to be a, a bit, let's say, arrogant, I thought this is a validation of fMRI. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, fMRI in terms of that, that we showed that deoxyhemoglobin goes down. Yes. Where yes. there is the fMRI activation, which at some point, at some point, of course, I mean, it was clear from from all the theories, but it, you have to show it somehow. Huh? Yeah, in and the, in the, the animal, show. I think it has been shown. Huh? Yes, and so that was, and uh, yes, we did a lot of validation studies with PET with fMRI, and yes. um, 
And I mean, NIRS is still something we are doing, not not very much. It has, I mean, it. I think it is very much, very often applied in in in, in pediatric work. Yeah? Okay. And Helmut Obrik, who was with me all these years until yes. now, he's doing lots of uh, work also in in babies and on and, uh, on language development. Also, other people. There, it really has found, uh, I think, a great application. Okay. And uh, in in and also, I mean, in the field, uh, yeah. if you want to do something where you really, so we have a setup now where we where we combine um, VR, uh, which you cannot do when you move, you cannot do it in fMRI, uh, yeah. VR, EG, and NIRS. So that's where where all these mobile technology uh, comes together. So you had a, a your first paper, if I'm right, is was. I'm really putting this forward was in journal cerebral blood flow and metabolism in about 96, I guess, with uh, Kleinschmidt and Fromm, or maybe there were others, or obviously there were that was a, That was a combination with, 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 with FMI, yeah? Right, right, right. And the first NIRS was in 93. Yeah. 93 with neuroscience yeah. letters, I guess. Yeah, uh, yeah. And, and so, yeah, right, you've been finding, and I remember in your paper, you were saying, oh, this, this is potentially a great technique for bedside sort of assessment. And, and I, I know that there are companies that sell like these, these whole heads. Oh yes! Oh, they are quite successful. Huh? Yeah, yeah. And they're doing. I think they're doing great work. Of course, uh, I never. I mean, the question is, uh, you should only do it when 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 uh, it's really better, or when it's suited for a certain thing. And when FMI is suited better, then you should do FMI. I mean, you don't. So. Uh, yeah. And and in this, let's say. Yeah, in, the, in this concert of or in this orchestra of methods, uh, I think it has conquered a certain but very strong niche. Yes, where where yes. it is widely applied in the field in, uh, in 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 newborns and babies. So, how and, would it be applied in like a newborn? Like, um, would you if you're wondering about their, you know, their oxygenation in their brain, or 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 are you trying yeah, to? Do I mean, I am not in the content. Of that research, but for example, let's say you want to know when does lateralization of language start. Yeah. In the okay. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Or uh, is there so so you do so so typically you do some tasks where you want to know when does a certain ability appear during development. Yes. And then you look for neural correlates, and yes, you can also do fMRI, but that's much more so complicated much, and yeah. not so ecologically valid. Yeah, and and also studies. I mean, uh, there's one study where we went on a bike, huh? and you, so you can do now yeah. these are else, and you, so, so these kind of things are right. You could do exercise. Yeah. You could do all, and, and it's interesting. Yes, actually, exercise. Yeah. Yeah, my former postdoc Patrick Gregert here in Leipzig. He does a lot of work in sports medicine, uh, sports science. Yeah. So that's. Um, that's interesting. And interesting. Uh, I think uh, so there are a number of applications. Yeah. And also if you I mean, speaking of quantitation, I mean, if you want to quantitate the change, I don't think NIRS is very easy because you have this issue of extra cerebral contamination. And so so there's also an issue of quantitation. No? Yes. But uh, but it's probably I mean, in principle, the signals are at least it changes. You can quantitate it. Yeah, yeah and, and so yeah, and, and actually that's nice because right, near is you can actually and also you can get you can get oxidation, you can get blood 
volume. You can get, uh, and, and you can look at the relative dynamics of those for whatever reason, if you would like to. And actually, I think the most promising application hasn't even realized yet. Okay. And that is, we have one paper on that. Uh, that is fluorescence. Huh. Oh. So we have one paper, a complicated paper, I have to say, but where we show that in principle, you can measure fluorescence transgranularly in human subjects. That's interesting. Uh, so, so ba I mean, the, 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 the way we did this was that we, we injected an agent which is, uh, which is fluorescent and absorbing simultaneously. Ah. And, uh, and, we, and there is uh, different arteries uh, which come, f which, uh, so the intracerebral comes first and then comes the extracerebral. Uh, and so, and we could pick up the fluorescent signal from the from the first appearance, which is uh, fluorescent. Yeah? Okay. So, which is intracranial. Yeah? Yes. And in other words, so it um, it is in principle possible. It was a high concentration. The problem is uh, somebody has to develop the the, the dyes. Yeah? Yes. And yes. if you if if you I mean you have to develop the dyes. You have to go through you know. FDA clearance in humans and stuff, and in an unknown market situation. And uh, of course, the other limitation is that you don't get into the depth. Yes. Needed, no? Yeah. But right. I mean, I mean penetration is only about yeah a little bit. Yeah. yeah. But there are many mm, neurological disorders that manifest themselves on the surface of the brain. So I think, in principle, that's a very interesting avenue for future development. No? Yeah, it seems like it could also be a, a really, I mean, as, as a neurologist, you know, looking for the potential for stroke, I mean, it seems like it seems like it would be an easy way to, if you had some sort of calibrated nearest in some sort, having, um, you know, assessing likelihood for, you know, vascular pat patency or, or, you know, likelihood yeah. of stroke or flow deficits, potentially. I mean, I don't, you know, it, it I mean, might just be better to do MRI with that. But we did a lot of studies we tried a lot of studies, and but in acute stroke, uh, I'd say that uh, MRI just yeah, won. Is or, much I mean, better. actually, actually, CT. <laughs> oh, really? <laughs> so, With contrast I mean, agents, I, and you just see it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's just it's everywhere. You have a CT more easily available. Yes. And uh, and. 24 hour uh, a day and um, and the I, I would argue that the MRI information is more accurate more precise but I mean if time and accessibility matter yeah. then CT most often has more. of course there are a lot of exceptions and actually the um, I was in Berlin at the time and the last thing I did was I mean I, I still work actually partly in Berlin. Uh, and what I, I won a grant for an MRI on the stroke unit, which yes. is still there. And uh, with that MRI, a lot of interesting things have been done. Uh, so now you don't have the accessibility problem anymore because you, you I mean, you, it's just adjacent to the stroke unit. And um, so you can do a lot of studies uh, where you don't have this problem of accessibility. Yeah, yeah. And that's actually um, quite interesting. 
it, but even at the Charité where this is, uh, it's not 24 hours available. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Because it's like a research uh, funded project. And so you would have to have additional manpower. Yeah. And uh, so uh, during the day when people are there, then people go in that scanner. Okay. But uh, most patients are still diagnosed with the CT. And actually people, I remember seeing a number of uh, people who actually claim that using optical imaging, there's, you can have, you can overcome to some degree the penetration effects. And with, you know, you can actually do a little bit more depth uh, specific or even start doing spatial encoding. Oh yeah, oh yeah. I mean, actually, it's not, you can do depth uh, resolution. Yeah. Uh, not, but just not, I mean, you don't, you cannot cover the entire brain. Yes, uh, yes. You can in, in, in preterm babies, you can. Yeah. Uh, but in humans, you get depth. Oh, yes, of course you get depth in them. I mean, so... You just increase the power the, and you get more depth, right? Yeah. Yeah, and I mean, there are different methods. Uh, I mean, the, lowest, the, the, the easiest conceptually is a time resolved, time of flight, you measure time of flight. Yeah. And then from the, the, from the time, from the duration, you, you find the, with modeling, you find the deep uh, uh, neurons, no? Yes, uh, the yes. Deep, deep layers. Yeah. And... Okay. Okay. Well, all right. Well, um, yeah, let's go on to, so, so, and yeah. And so, so already you were a pioneer in perfusion imaging with, with susceptibility and, and also a pioneer in optical imaging, which, you know, grew into a field of itself and helped uh, push bold along as well. Um, so now, uh, and this is really relevant here. I just to mention it again, that doing simultaneous EEG, we've been doing EEG with, with fMRI, uh, and you had some early work. I mean, in, in neuroimage in 2003, you did it with optical imaging, but also in human and, and F, fMRI. And, and fMRI. So yeah, in 2008 or two, between that time, right, you did it with fMRI. And uh, it was one of the first work. I think that so there was maybe some work, other people doing, uh, I think Robin Goldman was doing some work. Yeah, as Goldman, well, but, Goldman with, with Cohen. Huh? Yes, Mark with Mark Cohen. Cohen. Yes. Yeah, but... And that's, I still think there's more to, to be obtained. And, and I think your work was, was, was interesting because it specifically was looking at uh, uh, this interplay between subcortical errors and, and visual cortex and trying to explain what alpha, what alpha yeah. you know, activity was. And so maybe you wanna talk briefly about that, that early work. Um, yeah, I mean, the... the Motivation for that was really, um, can we go beyond mere task on, off, on, off, and can we get a hold on, yes, endogenous? Uh, yeah, like resting state. So resting state was getting big. Yes, yeah. yes, and it was a kind of resting state. Then people, I mean, the visual the paper had appeared, but people did not think that much on resting state right. at the time. Right. Uh, and 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 the nice thing about alpha, it's spontaneously fluctuating. Yes, yes. And little was known on alpha, and uh, so. But of course, I mean the the uh, one of the theories that it's just a nuisance. It just has no role. Whatever seemed, I, I thought, always a bit strange. It seems uh, that would be the dominant brain. I mean, come on. Huh? 
<laughs> right. But I mean, that's of course also not a very scientific <laughs> argument. <laughs> I have to admit. The oh come on argument, right? No. <laughs> but no, I and I think everyone would agree with you though. That is, yeah. it's, uh, and and so so yes. So the the and and of course it was also not so clear what is kind of the energetic or the blood flow consequence of rhythmic activity. Yes. Yes. And I mean. To me, at least, was not clear. Would would the signal go up or down? I mean, would both signal increase with more alpha or decrease with more alpha? Yes. And so that was, I, I mean, this Goldman paper uh, just was partially. Or, I mean, it was around so uh, uh, the data, but they had suggested signal goes down and beat it. Then a systematic study, and also uh, you remember that there was always this discussion on activation deactivation. Yes. So, yes. so does when we find in bold what we call a deactivation, does deoxyhemoglobin go up then? Yeah. And this yeah. is precisely what we did. So we found this deactivation, and then and then we um, we um, looked at the NIRS, and we found in NIRS the opposite. It looks like a hemodynamic response function. Uh, it is actually huh? yes. <laughs> only yes. that deoxyhemoglobin goes up in this this case. So that was uh, for us kind of a first of all understanding uh, in this case the deactivation of the occipital cortex with uh, with increasing alpha. Also, and we were struggling with accepting this finding. Uh, that actually you have a role in that you don't know maybe uh, i tell you okay okay <laughs> so, 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 so i tell you that story before okay so i think it must have been before that we had done some study on pharmacological mri giving l-dopa to patients parkinson yes. patients okay and and we had some interesting findings in the in deep nuclei, in subcortical areas. And I remember we presented a poster, now I can say that. And uh, actually, I think it was Jack Bellivo at that OHBM meeting presented our poster as one of the highlights of the meeting. But after that, I visited you. Yes. And, and you were saying, hmm, Arno, um, let's look at the data carefully. <laughs> <laughs> and <laughs> so, and you basically, I don't know, I, I must have had the data with me, or maybe you were in Berlin, I don't know. So yeah, I met you. That's when I visited, yeah, either way, yeah, yeah. So I met you, and basically, you could nicely demonstrate that all we were seeing were movement artifacts. <laughs> like, <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> so, so, but yeah. that is a point in talking to you, I have to say. So, <laughs> so, I'm so glad to help. Uh, and but but of course the interface of gray and white matter is very dangerous for for these kind of effects. No? Yes. And so yes. there was no, never a paper on this, only an abstract. <laughs> 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 but that's I mean a good thing. That's how science works. Right? Yeah. So but yeah. then later, I think it was later, we had this uh, this finding that beside the decrease of bold signal in the visual cortex, 
there was an increase in the thalamus. Yeah. And yes. uh, I, I remember I said to my colleagues, Petra Ritter, for example, you know her, I said, yes. I'm not sure. Once I was discussing such a thing with Peter Benitini, and it was all movement. <laughs> oh, no, I'm the movement guy. No. <laughs> Don't show it to Peter. <laughs> So if I remember correctly, the paper, we discussed this very cautiously. Yes. Uh, and now, I mean, it, it, it just wasn't 100% clear, but I think it's now been confirmed. So actually, there was then a PET study, which is not as susceptible to this kind of artifacts. Yeah. Also showing an increase in, uh, in, in, in blood flow or glucose. I forgot. Yeah. So what do you think is actually the story? What do you think is happening? Uh, you know, it obviously doesn't you know explain what alpha waves are, but um, you know there might be some interesting. It seems like alpha waves are, you know, more of an indicator. I mean, early on it was mentioned that it's this idling brain, but in some sense it could be it could be a very deep story of, you know, the. And I remember seeing uh, a study at one of the cognitive neuroscience uh, 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 computational neuroscience conferences saying alpha waves might be. That might be the the signal of, of how the brain updates its world models, and so if everything's ah, if everything's yeah, okay. Yeah then it's the alpha waves are happening. But if it's like things are updated and you're consciously thinking and experiencing, then it's yeah. suppressed. So. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, we are working, actually, we have been working a lot. Alpha is one of the the what are, the themes that have, that we have been working on since. Yes. So, so um, first of all, actually, in a, I think the nicer paper years later by Becker, uh, we, the, the, the question was now that there is this spontaneous modulation of alpha. And when you do a visual stimulation, then you also have a spontaneous modulation of the evoked FMI response. Yes. And so in that paper, we asked, does the spontaneous modulation of background alpha, which goes along with alpha, does that explain the variability of the bold response? And the answer is yes, huh. and to a large percentage. Oh, that's interesting. That's yeah, interesting. it's Becker, J Neuroscience in, I forgot, 2010 or something. Okay. Uh, so that was the next step. And then, so uh, of course, Ole Jensen and these people have very nicely shown alpha is an inhibitory, mainly inhibitory rhythm. It seems to, it, it it modulates excitability of the cortex. Yeah. And uh, it also is kind of, uh, I'm just preparing a talk on, on what I call the gray zone of perception. So mm. when you have a perceptual input or sensory input, then um, at first, how much this is translated into like in V1 or in S1 into an evoked response. Yes. That yes. is dominated by the strength of alpha rhythm. Okay, okay. And at this point, it's not yet conscious. So yeah. there must be different processes to make it then conscious again, to make it conscious. Huh? Yes. And the, yes. the zone in between, I call the gray zone, because there are, for example, uh, it's like uh, like in blind sight. No? Right, right. You, yeah? And yeah. we have done similar experiments, and alpha plays a role there, where we where we look at healthy people, we give them a stimulus, now again in the somatosensory domain, yeah. and we ask, did you feel it? And they say no. 
And then they ask, which finger was stimulated? And they say the correct finger. But now we are healthy volunteers. <laughs> That's interesting. So just below conscious perception, but it's somehow getting through in some way. Yes. Um, and this is somehow, and, yeah, interesting. And it seems that alpha regulates the access to this, huh? but the ex, the, then there's an additional threshold yeah. to pass, to get uh, consciously uh, perceived. Huh? That's interesting. Uh, That's interesting. That's kind um, of, I mean, uh, we are working on, on, on an entire framework, but our data look like that. And uh, we, I think maybe the, what I really like, I have uh, now with me a colleague, uh, Vadim Nikoni, who's a really absolutely wonderful EEG expert. Yeah. And so, so uh, I mentioned, I mentioned that, that alpha determines excitability. Okay. Okay. And uh, now how to prove that? How to prove that? So the more alpha, the more excited, is it directly proportional? I mean, uh, inverse, inverse, inverse. Right. Right. Okay. Okay. And now how to prove that? So, so, and now we did an experiment where we looked at somatosensory stimulus yep. and we looked at the evoked response N20. Yes. And we know this first response is strictly excitatory. Yep. Now, now if you if you now and we measured EG of course, we do achieve that and we measured alpha. And now and we took two stimuli. One is a bit stronger than the other one. Yes. Now, when you take a stronger stimulus, then N twenty is bigger. Makes sense. Yes. And then we looked at the effect of alpha. And what what uh, what is known. Alpha in, is inversely related to the late evoked potential. Okay. So, and also you more consciously, but the first N20 becomes with lower alpha, with higher excitability, with presumably higher excitability, smaller. Yeah, interesting. And, uh, and we were thinking about this and finally, now we think this is the proof that alpha changes excitability. Okay. Why? Okay. Uh, now, how do we change excitability by giving depolarizing the neuron? And uh, EEG doesn't measure the action potential. It measures the synaptic activity until the the change in synaptic uh, the change in resting potential until you have this uh, action potential. Okay. And now okay. If, if you are depolarized already because it's more excitable, the distance in terms of microvolt yeah. is smaller until you have the action potential. Yeah, yeah. And that's the reason why N20 becomes smaller. Interesting, interesting. And, and, and yeah. And, and evolutionarily, it says. I mean, is this related to your? Is this, is this linked to your science uh, two thousand three paper with? Uh, yeah, uh, yeah. This is this is an eLife paper in last year two thousand. Okay, this is even last year. Yeah, but but the the yes, but actually the two thousand three paper uh, with Felix Blankenburg uh, basically started this this thinking. This was uh, so basically actually speaking of the gray zone. There we looked at stimuli you never perceive. Yes. Yeah. Completely subliminal. And, 
yeah. completely subliminal. And there uh, we find that Bolt deactivates. Yeah. And also it seems that it leads to a feedforward inhibition and kind of uh, from the thalamus to the to the um, to the S1. Yes. And if you look at the evoked potential, you see it the evoked potential stops after 50 milliseconds. Interesting. Interesting. And uh, and and also subsequent stimuli are inhibited. Okay. Yep. So it seems to be an inhibitory and actually what we showed later, uh, alpha increases. So that in some way increases the signal to the noise of the detection of the true signal in some sense or... or yes, yes, it's a good point, very good point. So the alpha increases and you could say that's the reason why it's inhibitory. Yeah. Because alpha is inhibitory. Uh, but most likely the, 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 the story is a bit more complicated. Most likely it's kind of a gating mechanism. You only want certain stimuli go in uh, and I, I'm yeah. pretty sure that uh, and then there's also the top-down uh, that kind of, in a top-down fashion, uh, the alpha is kind of configured in a way that that's, I mean, I don't have the 100% data to prove this, but some indication uh, um, that that kind of, you have a shaping of, of alpha, of inhibitory activity, and this lets a certain stimulus through and are yeah. easier through, and others don't. No? Yeah. So that's kind of the... the so. Yeah, I can't help but think uh, of the experiments that were possible with... Um, I know I know that uh, in, what is it, Nijmegen, that uh, you know, people have been looking at sort of alpha as sort of like you know, the signature of like a uh, feed, feedback signal, and then, and then uh, a gamma would be like a feed forward. And then they were doing, they're trying to do layer fMRI along with this to yes, try to get, yes. uh, I'm sure you're thinking about these things too. You have a- Yeah, yeah, that's, that's going that, in yeah. that direction. I mean, uh, so, I mean, Oli Jensen was the one in Nijmegen who, now he's not, he's not in Birmingham, but he's like, I think he's like the master and he has done most of the, the quite exciting studies about the role of alpha. And it's quite, it's quite complex. Yeah. And, uh, um, but uh, yeah, I mean, we're getting there, so it's, it's we're getting closer. Yeah, and and there, of course, you need multimodal imaging. Yeah, so we do it most of the time separately, EG and fMRI. Lots of EG work also. Yes. Uh, yes. But I think if you would view them together, then you just learn so much more. No? Yes, I completely agree, and and I think that and it's funny how yeah, you know, it's been one of those things that simultaneous EG and fMRI has been around for twenty years, but people haven't perfected it. And it, it'd be great to have some sort of a system that just works uh, as far as that's concerned. Um, I would, I, I really wanted to, I mean, obviously we're, if you don't mind going a little bit long, you know, longer, obviously it's as really- you, as you like. Sorry, I was talking too much. Yeah, <laughs> um, but no, we have, we have uh, there's so many interesting things to talk about, but one thing I wanted to mention, um, and certainly right, the alpha simultaneous EEG story is, is becoming more interesting as we go along. But one of the things that, uh, I think you could speak to, and, and your your papers caught my attention in terms of clinical applications of bold contrast. You know, many people are trying to go the route of looking for biomarkers for psychiatric disorders or neurology, looking at you know uh, network deficit. But I think I actually think that one of the lowest 
thresholds of, of getting to clinical efficacy is some of your work was the early work of looking at uh, mapping uh, the, the latency uh, of bold resting state to, to look at flow deficits. It yes, seems like yes. it, it seems like it, it, the maps look just as good as with gadolinium. Yes, yes. Um, do you want to speak about that? Because I think it's important. Yes, yes. As a, That's, as a clinical. Uh, I completely agree. I think that is really close to a clinical application, given also the fact that we learn more and more about side effects of gadolinium. Yes, and, yes. And I mean, the idea was very uh, so simple. Huh? Just just look at the delay of the of the bolt uh, in spontaneous in resting state. Huh? Yeah, and, and some people could argue that oh, bold is complicated. How do you get one delay? But there is a primary, you know, frequency. And, yeah, yeah, there's a primary frequency, and yes, of course, there is, and it's a bit complicated. What is your reference signal? Huh? Yes. So is it a vein? Or, but but that said, I mean, you're completely right. The maps look very closely to uh, perfusion maps. You can with this contrast agent, you can repeat it yeah. as often as you want. And so, so actually, with the MI system that I was mentioning at the Charité, uh, they, I mean, it's in close collaboration. Uh, and actually, uh, my wife is running the system. <laughs> uh, and uh, I mean, I mean uh, with others. With others. <laughs> and uh, so, the, the, the person who is really pushing this now is Ahmed Khalil, a great radiologist. Yeah. And uh, so, basically, what we have shown is that you can monitor reperfusion. So you can do so, which allows you also to see the effect of your treatment. Yes. And uh, and now they are doing it in, in many, many stroke patients that they see there. And I think the feasibility has been shown. Yes. And now it's it's really practicability. Yeah. So practicability means things like having a program that tells the, I mean, that you have the analysis immediately. Yes. So it's, it's not enough to, to, to acquire the data and then after 20 patients do the data analysis. Yes. But of course, you have to have it immediately. Uh, and in stroke, uh, in acute stroke especially, of course, literally time is brain. Yeah. And, but these kind of things have been addressed. They have uh, a tool that gives them, that gives immediate uh, maps. Yeah. And yeah. Um, it's not yet, I mean, it's done just as a, as a research study. But I think this research study then, in, you know, if you have it now in 200 patients, and then you can really see and compare uh, also in terms of would I have done the correct intervention based on this yeah uh that is very close to a clinical application i completely agree yeah and i think the two things one uh, right there's more work to be done in terms of you know fully validating it i think there's some people argue that it you know that right it might be somewhat related to the vasculature more than uh you know uh, the relative delays might but i think actually i mean looking at the maps and looking at your work of course there'll be more validation but it it, like you said, it's it's pretty convincing. But like like you also said though, um, and this is the problem that I think that a lot of people like that fMRI has in general is that these processing packages, you know, they need to just work and they need to go fast. And vendors are a little bit less. Uh, they don't really, you know, it's it's hard to to 
you know, disseminate this to thousands of scanners and have a technician just be able to tech it, press a button and have it come up. That's a real uh, barrier. Yeah. I mean, the practicabilities, these are really the crucial things uh, in making it clinically useful. Hmm? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but I think actually you're right. Maybe I'll have to have uh, uh, him on, on uh, the, the podcast as well, because I think that in itself could be an interesting topic to discuss in detail. Yeah. Yeah. But I also want to get really quickly, as a neurologist, uh, you've also been studying um, plasticity. And I, I've been really intrigued by your, by your work looking at... Um, these motor tasks, these balance tasks, and, and showing within a few days uh, changes in connectivity uh, with learning and, and with skill learning, um, but also uh, uh, changes. I was really intrigued by your recent paper and changes in uh, fractional anisotropy as well. Uh, do you, I mean, obviously there've been papers on that, but you've sort of followed up on it and it's been interesting. So. Do you want to speak to that uh, a little bit as well, uh, whether it's... Yeah, the interesting, yeah. Uh, so first of all, I think what, what one learns in these studies is that, and it's also a theme of my research work, uh, I mean, we tend to say we have a T1 image, this is structural, and this is functional, and this is... And now <laughs> it's a T1 image. Yeah, and 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 it's something that comes out of the scanner, uh, and so it's not. So um, that's very important when you when you relate these findings to uh, to what happens actually with the underlying physiology. Yeah? So actually, what what really was intriguing for me was in this very first study when we did we did structural measures uh, VBM. And yes. we also already did uh, resting state. But uh, so after two weeks, there were some structural changes in, in primary motor areas. They were continuing to learn. And after four weeks, they were gone. Wow. Wow. And, uh, and so, and of, in a way, if you think about it, I mean, you are a runner. So, I mean, if every time you run, your motor cortex grows, <laughs> maybe... <laughs> <laughs> It'd be huge, right? <laughs> I'm sure. Actually, I'm sure that happened. But uh, but uh, so so it's not possible. So it uh, so uh, and so we now now we now know that it's kind of a general principle. So areas have increased activity, also increased volume in in VBM, also increased connectivity, and then. Uh, all the newly formed, most of the newly formed synapses, the spines, they are they are deleted again, and only a few remain. Yeah. And uh, actually, in this first study, we found the long-term changes, especially frontally, kind of the so in the planning area, prefrontal, and there you also we found changes in the connectivity to the motor areas. Okay. So so uh, and then later uh, we looked at very early changes, uh, and actually you find very early changes in again T one, and then you wonder what is it yeah. after an hour or half an hour. Yes. So um, I'm still not hundred percent sure what it is. I don't think that I mean I mean uh, 
very unlikely that there are new neurons or anything. Right. It's, it's rather maybe a combination. So, so what could happen is that there is with synaptogenesis, which goes really fast, that there is an inflow of additional cells. Yeah. Uh, and that could produce this transient effect. Yeah. yeah. And this disappears. This is after several days, it's gone. Is it is it cell so, swelling potentially? It's like you know small amounts of, or uh, could also. Yeah. I don't know. We we don't know. We don't know. Interesting. Interesting. And and yes, and then there are also changes in fractional anisotropy, yeah. which indicate from these frontal areas that that uh, uh, in these white matter regions, when you train for a long time, then you have structural changes which also uh, persist. Yeah. And, and what's interesting though, I was I was surprised by the direction though. I think you know fractional anisotropy goes down. I would have thought, oh well, there's more connections, so you have more fibers that would go up. But instead, it seems to go down with with learning. Uh, with yeah, learning skill. I'm to be honest, I'm not sure um, what it really means in terms of you know if you have let's say if you have fibers which now are growing, which are orthogonal to the right. pre-existing ones. Yeah, that's like true. That. Uh, so, so these studies were not with our connectome scanner with ultra high resolution da da da, where yeah. you might be able to disentangle that. So I would, I would say that there was a change and, and that is strongly indicative of a structural change in fiber tracts. Yeah. I would be careful in in interpreting the, the, the direction more or less. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, 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 I think hopefully, you know, we're conveying the idea that there's a lot. I mean, the more you the more you look into these things with better tools, the more the questions come, and then you make progress and you and you, there's yes. real insight being made. And, uh, and yeah, and, and okay, so um, two quick things, two more quick things, and I'll have a few open questions. Um, so we before the podcast we were, we were chatting about uh, focus ultrasound and it's sort of unpublished work of yours. Um, is there a potential for using that as a, either a neuromodulator? And this in general with neurologists, you know, the various neuromodulation fMRI could be useful for targeting to having targeted sites for neuromodulation. What do you what do you think of neuromodulation and what are you doing with focus ultrasound? <laughs> yeah, so I'm uh, I'm fascinated by focus ultrasound. I have to confess <laughs> and um so obviously i mean there are i mean on the potential side there is it's almost endless no? so you can so in principle you can get anywhere in the brain uh, it is known from basic physiological studies you can excite neurons you can induce action potentials you can inhibit neurons depending on the parameters yes um so the possibilities are almost endless and but of course a lot of questions if you do it in vivo are, are, are open and yeah I mentioned before so one study we did was with very low intensity ultrasound we applied uh, it at two assumed depth of stimulation yes which uh, we adjusted via beamforming and one was just by estimation targeting the thalamus and the other one just by estimation just below the, the skull. Yes. And we did simultaneously EG and we found that in the one condition 
the EG signal, uh, the alpha rhythm, again, alpha rhythm okay. would go up and the other condition would go down. And so we huh. had kind of a differential effect. And that is, for me, wow. a strong indication, not published yet, so this is not peer-reviewed data by yeah. Peter Bonatini. Uh, maybe he finds a flaw. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, but, uh, so, until you do that, uh, until you find the flaw, I, I'm hoping for that this is a proof that we have a differential effect depending on the depth of stimulation. That's, that's cool. Okay. And that's already cool. Yeah. Now, mm, of course, especially if you go to higher intensities, which we probably would need, there's issues of safety. Yeah. Uh, reflections everywhere, which could superimpose. And, and actually, interestingly, it could actually mean that some studies will first be done in patients that could actually benefit from it. Yeah. 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 Okay. So, so speaking of the thalamus, I mean, uh, so if one could target uh, thalamic areas which are responsible for pain, this could be in elderly people who would not undergo deep brain invasive stimulation. This could be a fascinating uh, possibility. Interesting. It is it so it's stimulating the thalamus. It's some specific area might suppress your uh, might turn off this mechanism for experiencing pain. I guess. Yes. Uh, yes. Very, yeah. Okay. And so so. Uh, on the other hand, we know really little about what precisely happens with our parameters that we're using transcranially yeah. with the neuronal areas, no? yes. with, with the brain areas. So also, um, if you think about other techniques like transcranial magnetic stimulation, we know more about it. Mm, it is not necessarily true that the effects by ultrasound are just the same, only deeper. Uh, and I said, you could elicit action potentials. Maybe, yes, we elicit action potentials, but maybe that's not so useful yeah. to elicit action potentials. Yeah. Uh, or maybe it's very useful. I don't, I don't know. Yeah. I mean, there are other things, of course. Um, if you go to higher intensities, you can selectively open blood-brain barrier. Yes. Yeah, yeah. That I think also has a potential. Yeah, especially with drugs and or something like that. If you want to deliver or something. Yes, you yeah. just deliver the drug specifically there. Right. And right. and also uh, there there is a, a very intriguing work by a Alzheimer researcher from Australia. Actually, when I say Australia, now now I should mention that this guy. Uh, who is now a very well-known Alzheimer's researcher in Australia. Uh, he was the class comrade of my sister in my oh. little, little town in the black, in my little village in the black forest. Oh my gosh. So it's very funny. So and this guy, now being in Brisbane, uh, this guy applied focused ultrasound in Alzheimer models of rats or mice. I think mice. Yes. And the blacks disappeared. Wow, it just shakes them loose potentially, or sort of increases. Yeah, yeah. I don't. <laughs> I should know more about the mechanisms. Maybe yeah, it has yeah. to do with blood-brain barrier. But it's a paper, I think, in Science Translational Medicine, so it's high-profile. And yeah, so, uh, I mean, as you know, we do not even know whether the disappearance of the blacks 
yeah, helps. whether that helps or not, or there. might be a secondary factor. Yeah, the yeah. aducanumab controversy. Uh, it's the same thing, kind of, no? Yeah, yeah. But but that's also a possibility. But actually, I mean, we are primarily targeting neuromodulation, and uh, we are targeting with so in our just one uh, a quant where we do it, or where the plan is to do it simultaneously with MRI. So the system is uh, can can be performed in MRI uh, and then MRI and now it's becoming not so clear which MRI sequence will help us to localize hmm. the ultrasound. Okay. So okay. there is ARFI, which is a kind of localized, uh, no, no, ultrasound triggered diffusion imaging. Okay. But it may need, because, you know, I mean, uh, ultrasound moves, uh, yeah. is a movement basically. Yeah. And, and then it should, and it does, it's been shown, it does lead to diffusion changes. Oh, the cool. problem, we don't know yet, we don't know yet whether, whether in the low intensities we are using for neuromodulation, this will be enough for showing this effect in this AFI uh, acoustic radiation. That's force interesting. That's interesting. It seems like it should be. I mean, right, that'd be interesting to continuously monitor that with right diffusion weighting um, of, you know, it seems like you can go up high enough to actually look at very, but- Yeah, I mean, we, we, yeah. I mean, in, maybe we have to, to use the very strong um, magnetic field gradients of our yeah. uh, content term scanner. Yes, yes. So that, we'll see, we'll see. And of course the other technique to potentially localize it is bold. Yeah, yeah, you're and right, so, yeah. So uh, it's a bit more complicated because we don't know yet what happens to Bolt at the site of uh, stimulation. Yeah. Uh, yeah. But but um, but it also might just simply, who knows? I mean, it could affect susceptibility in other ways, or or, or just the effect of the of field gradients around you know whatever. If it's if, if it's vibrating, there might be less def, you know dephasing or or something like that. It might change the regime. Interesting. I think that's just a matter of time before you find with MRI a, a way of monitoring this continuously. And it seems like it's huge potential. Uh, and as I mentioned before, I'm not sure if I would volunteer for this yet, but uh, um, yes. <laughs> I mean, even the mechanism of bold effects with activation, it's sort of like it's, I can picture it like, you know, shaking the neurons until they depolarize, which yes. seems invasive, but it's it's probably not. And it's probably, that's not the mechanism either. So, I mean. <laughs> yeah, actually the the, the mechanism is probably there are stretch sensitive ion channels. Ah, okay, okay. So actually, the same, the same ion channels or similar ion channels that mediate that that just there was a Nobel Prize one or two years ago for these piezo channels, no? Yes, yes. Basically, transmit touch, but also another area of our research is uh, the the blood pressure regulation in baroreceptors yeah and and so maybe maybe um this the same receptors are responsible for the ultrasound effect. okay okay that's interesting that's yeah well there's so many things and 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 right i mean there's so and, and it seems like it like you said it keeps on growing um i was just interviewing somebody looking at real-time uh, neurofeedback as a neuromodulator sort of the sort of the implicit neurofeedback that might be useful as well. Yes. I mean, uh, yes. so uh, yeah, the combination of fMRI with this, with MRI, uh, with all these methods are just beginning. Um, so yeah, yeah, so 
Uh, okay, so there's so much more to talk about, but we've gone so long. Uh, oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> no, no, no. It's been completely wonderful. It feels like it's only been about 10 minutes. I mean, it's been, this is, I mean, your work, and you also have covered things like, uh, um, I, one other paper I just have to mention before we finish up is, is really, really intriguing work on perception uh, as, a, as a function of the phase of the cardiac cycle. Uh, which yeah, was kind of was interesting. I mean, it seems like you're also looking at these sort of uh, uh, changes in excitability or changes in perception uh, with, you know, how well you can detect sensory input yeah. with, with your cardiac cycle. So maybe briefly mention that, and we'll we'll, we'll yeah. So so maybe I should because uh, the, the the things seem sometimes also a bit kind of this. No, no, that. it's all yeah. So yeah, yeah. But uh, I just wanna so one theme that we are working on in the last yeah, 10 years or so is brain-body interactions. The model system is a somatosensory. All these studies are brain-body, I mean, naturally. Yeah. And the other theme is uh, heart-brain interaction. Uh, and actually this paper is the uh, relationship between the heart effects and the somatosensory perception. Yes. And and actually uh, and also uh, here in Leipzig, there's a major project grant for many years on on obesity. Also another way of of brain body interaction. So so it's a, a common thread from probably eighty percent of the work we have been doing in the last ten years is really looking at brain body or sometimes I call it mind brain body interactions uh, and. For example, those interactions uh, which relate to the cardiac interaction or to um, also to interaction with relate to food ingestions are rarely conscious. So yes. the idea of non unconscious and conscious and the transition is also a common theme uh, to that. No? Yeah. And and yes, so this study by Israel. Uh, is uh, yes, I like I like it also uh, because it 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 actually shows uh, that that most likely via the baroreceptors hmm. the the sensory perception is different in systole versus diastole. Yes, and now one could we are, actually we are discussing still is this an effect which has any systole versus diastole any meaning yeah or is it um something which just uh, is the kind of uh it has to be but it the the, the effect of baroreceptors serves some other means yes yes and yes. if the baroreceptors do something then it just happens that there's also effect during systole and diastole and we have been discussing controversially among us, uh, with me actually favoring the idea that doesn't mean much during system yeah. diastole. And it's more relevant for other things. For And uh, uh, now I actually think both is true. It's, okay. So, so uh, but maybe to mention also why I think this baroreceptor effect is is relevant for other things. Uh, so then, 
So it's blood pressure related, obviously. And in systole, you have higher blood pressure than in diastole. Yes. And now, if you think of people with high blood pressure, they have very similar effects. So you have, uh, you have mm, less pain sensitivity with higher blood pressure. Huh. You, uh, and memory is changing with higher blood pressure. So, um, and actually well-being, what happens, so, so in a, in a actually, that's under review right now. Yeah. Uh, it's one of my all-time favorite studies. Uh, huh. If you have higher blood pressure, you are in a better mood. You have higher well-being ratings. Yeah, yeah, I think I saw, I read that in your paper as well, right? I mean, it's sort of, yeah, that's interesting. So, uh, so uh, and basically, basically, uh, and this is, I mean, the, the data we have is based on the UK Biobank. This is like not uh, so on 500,000 yeah, yeah. people or something. Like thousands of subjects. Uh, yeah. Yes, and, and, but, uh, so my theory is, it relates to this baroreceptor effect uh, and it also, um, so that's the mechanism. And it could be highly relevant for the development of hypertension. Because what it means is that, um, <laughs> that I feel better when I have higher blood pressure. Yeah. <laughs> and so because now, now this, I mean, you know, in earlier evolutionary time, when I had to fight the lion, uh, then I better don't feel pain. I better feel good right. to fight the lion. Yes. Uh, but I didn't fight the lion every day, but maybe every six weeks, yes. uh, if at all. And, but now we have similar effects with the iPhone ringing or with a deadline or yep. with some whatever. So we have it 25 times a day. Yes. Yeah, and and so uh, actually, I think that uh, that this is a this could be a mechanism for certain people to kind of dive into this vicious cycle, yep. and over the long run, it leads to it's it's a it's one of the it's chronic high blood pressure, yeah. chronic high blood pressure, huh? interesting. And, I mean, this is uh, actually we are not the first to say that it. Uh, there were some theories. 25 years ago, and they were kind of discarded because they didn't have the, the means to address this. And I mean, I would not deny that, of course, there are molecular events, there are cell. I mean, it's not it's not some voodoo uh, right, right. medicine, right. but it's I think uh, an additional psychological mechanism that that leads to to this vicious cycle. Yeah, and uh, so this, so so talking about my brain body interactions, uh, these vicious cycles in obesity and hypertension, and uh, its relationship, how the brain communicates with the body, and uh, that's kind of the theme. Yeah, uh, we talked a lot about methods, but that's kind of the theme we are we are working on, uh, in order to to understand also these risk factors uh, first of all. Yeah, and I think that's actually, I think that's really interesting because it's been neglected. I think people think of the body and they think that's the body and then they think of the brain and it's separate and there's like two separate things, they're not attached. But I think a lot of the, maybe the answers to mechanisms of body issues or, or brain issues might be completely linked. I mean, you know, there's obvious, like you were, like you were talking about with exercise studies, I mean, with running, yes, for instance, yes. you know, I go for a run and, 
you know, my mood is my, my state, my, my brain state is to me significantly changed even after, you know, running for 30 years. I, I just, after each run, it's, it's an effect. It's not, uh, and yeah, and I notice it when I don't run. My wife notices it when I don't run. <laughs> um, I can tell you if I, yeah, I mean, I'm not, uh, uh, you're, you're a professional runner. Did you want just, I just saw on Twitter or I don't know, on Facebook, you just oh, won. Oh, yeah. yeah. You're the <laughs> well, best. Not, not quite you're professional. You're the best in your age group, in your, in your 30s. Yeah. Uh, well, uh, Yeah, well, thanks. Thanks. I, I, I do that as a hobby. My, my track, I for the 55 to 59 age group, I yeah, I won our, I won the indoor nationals in the 800. It's incredible. Uh, it's incredible. Yeah. <laughs> well, thanks. Thank you. It's, it keeps me going. Congratulations. I mean, I, so I wanted to say I'm not by far, far away from that, but I do uh, uh, by cycling in the morning. Yeah. Uh, at least when I'm in Berlin, in Leipzig, I don't have. <laughs> uh, but I feel much better the entire day. Yeah. Uh, when I have half an hour of, of doing something. So these Gosh, are traumatic effects. No? It, it really is. And so there's so, and I'm sure there's many more than that, uh, that go both ways. And, uh, and I think it's really, it's great that you're focusing on that because I think, uh, yeah, I think that, you know, there's, it's, it's difficult though, because for instance, uh, Yeah, physician, it's much easier to, if someone is depressed, to sort of describe medi prescribe medication rather than a regimen of exercise. And it's much easier to follow, take a pill. But the exercise, I mean, it's not only exercise too. It could be yes. other things that are, that are potentially useful, um, are more procedural. And, you know, uh, but yeah, I, I think that that sort of study is what we need more of. And I, I agree. So, yeah. Yeah. So along. So just to just to wrap up here really quickly. So you're at the Max Planck. I'm I'm really impressed when I when I saw uh, all your roles that you played. Um, you know, you, you're head of neurology. You're the you're the the director of of the neurology uh, uh, center. I mean, the Max Planck is interesting in the sense you have you have this you have the directors um, at your center. You have. Angela Frederici, you have Nick Weisskopf, who actually we interviewed last year, uh, Christian Dollar, um, and yourself. And do you, so you have your group, do you interact very much and, and how does that work out? And, and it seems like you're still applying for grants. So it's not totally, uh, completely uh, funded in that regard. So, and how do you- Yeah, I mean, for specific projects, yeah. like the ultrasound, for example, no? so or the obesity project, we go for project grants with the university. But yeah. of course, yes, I mean, we have close collaboration uh, in the Institute. So uh, this, this, this Nick, it's very straightforward. It's yeah. about MRI, applying techniques, uh, doing it jointly, developing things. And I mean, I'm, I'm speaking of uh, developing, adjusting pulse sequences for ultrasound detection. I mean, I will not do it. <laughs> yeah, right, right, right. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> and uh, so that's uh, very close. Uh, and Angela Federici, I mean, a uh, great language expert. And there the collaboration is also with patients and aphasia patients in her group. Uh, so, so that's kind of a very natural okay. interaction. Uh, and actually the clinic that I'm uh, directing, which is a university hospital, that basically serves the entire institute no? so okay. for, for lesion studies. All right. And, okay. and Christian Döller, who is the newest, well, also no, four years, 
Uh, there we have joined actually ultrasound. Uh, so he wants to stimulate the hippocampus, obviously. Uh, and he's a, he's a, he's a memory uh, expert. And that, of course, has relationships to, to our work on, on patients with Alzheimer's, dementia. Yeah. And, and, and actually, as I said, uh, focused, focused ultrasound. Yeah. Um, yeah. And they're, they're, yeah, that's a very, I mean, we meet regularly. Actually, long COVID actually is also a joint project that we are okay. doing. Okay, right, right. Because right. it also has uh, implications potentially for, for memory. Yeah, yeah. Okay. So yes, uh, that's uh, um, a very fruitful collaboration, and also with with the, with the hospital and this with the university, which is actually we are on campus, so we are there. Uh, the 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 clinic is about fifty yards, so we, it's, oh. it's like a two minute walk. Yes. Uh, yes. So that's very important, I think, uh, because if you are far away, then even if you're in the same town, it's often difficult to. Yeah, and Leipzig's pretty close to Berlin as well. I mean, so you have yes, and you yes. have sort of a indirect. You used to be at Charité, and 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 also yes, uh, you have some connections. So I there. I still have strong links to to Berlin. Uh, so I have a little group there. Okay. And um, I I mean my family lives in 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 Berlin, so I'm okay. But uh, so I I stay overnight three four days in Leipzig and wow. but, uh, try to be as often as possible uh, of course with the family yes. now my son is is, is, is studying but uh, uh, yeah. something real huh? math <laughs> not something not, not something so, <laughs> so easy applied I mean <laughs> physics is if there's any anything that he would accept as a kind of science physics would be <laughs> Would be it. <laughs> well, the brain, the brain field needs more physicists and mathematicians to actually, you know, yeah, yeah. get a handle on it. But uh, he's not yet ready for that. <laughs> he would dismiss that. <laughs> so, and you also see patients to some degree at all? Do you have a? Do you see uh, I mean, so we have a. We have. Uh, I'm director of a clinic, but I, I mean, I have a eight-hour contract with that. Uh, so I have a. Uh, <laughs> and basically, Helmut Obrich, whom I mentioned before, yes. he is the 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 attending physician so he's basically doing by far most of the of the work okay. uh, and you know i'm regularly there and supervise it but i do not do very much clinical work myself i mean at the charity i was more or less full-time <laughs> clinician okay. so yeah. Uh, yeah of course also with a lot of administrative work no? okay okay and uh, where i also have some emphasis on on graduate schools uh, so, so the Berlin School of Mind and Brain was also something where we got great, great uh, students. I mean, you know, you, you probably know Daniel Margulis was yes. my first. Yes. Oh my gosh! Yeah. My first at the Berlin School of Mind and Brain, uh, and Smada Wadokaro, no Israel, the one we just. She's yes. also at Berlin School of Mind and Brain, so we got great students there. Okay. And but your student uh, actually early on, even before that, was Hake Hikrin. Yeah, okay. uh, yeah, of course. And obviously, he's, he's, he has taken he's off. <laughs> head of university. Yes. Okay. <laughs> he was he was always tall, yeah. but now he's... <laughs> <laughs> yes, we are good friends. So so uh, uh, it's really great. So he was vice president in Berlin, and and Hamburg is a, also a great place. 
and they have also great neuroscientists, Christian Büchel and those people. So, yeah, and yeah. he will do very well. I'm pretty sure. Yeah, and and in general, I think that right. That I mean, I, I've always been impressed with the Max Planck in, in the sense that they have a system that that really really works well. I think, and and it's set up nicely where. Uh, yeah, they have these centers, they, they're, they're focus of excellence. You have a, enough stability, enough resources to, to think deeply and broadly about things. And I think that it's kind of like the NIH, it's a little different. Yeah, it's very Yeah, but it's great. So no, I think well, it's, it's a bit like NIH. So, I, I mean, I don't know the NIH that well, but my impression is it's, it's quite similar. I mean, it, yeah, I mean, there's, there's, there's different philosophies. I think, I mean, the NIH has an intramural program which is like only 10% typically of the funding. And then the other 90%, they just give the grants to other universities. Ah. Um, it would be nice if there were more intramural sort of, uh, I think, I, I actually think the type of research being done and is, is different. And I think, I actually think we're, we're all suffering from, uh, uh, you know, the extramural world is suffering from this constant struggle to write grants. And yeah, uh, yeah. I think it, changes the flavor of the science. It's more short-term, it's less long-term in some sense, and it's more, uh, it, it's all pro makes progress, but it's, it seems like it could make more long-term progress if, if there is more stability. Yeah, I mean, in Germany, at that time, people also in universities had these long-term funding, didn't write grants, and it was a very, much far too stable. And yeah not innovative system no? right you need a, you need attention you need something so you need i mean so yeah. so obviously it was far too little dependent on grants yes far too little dependent on you being active you got your salary you got everything you had your people and yeah some people didn't do anything they they became a professor and then they stopped doing research no? yes. uh, and this and this of course was when i came to the us a dramatic difference no yes and yeah. but like with many things there's probably an optimum <laughs> yeah 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 there's a there's a balance i mean even in max yes. Planck, i'm sure you get evaluated i sure you i'm sure oh yeah oh yeah uh and there's you know at least in the interval program we get we get every four years we get evaluated and uh it's not quite the same but it sort of keeps you honest and it keeps you sort of looking and on edge and and trying to push the field yes. as opposed to just coasting yeah. and and yes it's uh so I, I, mean, I can't really judge in the U.S., but I, I sense that in, for some people it's really just just any grants, 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 yeah. and uh, so that might be a bit over the top, no? Right. And um, so okay. it will probably go. Back. I could imagine having a hybrid where you get like you know a certain guaranteed startup or something, and that gets, kind of gets your momentum going, so you can then yes, be more yes. successful. Or Something like that. Who knows? I'm not. Mm -hmm. That's way uh, above my pay scale to sort of think in, in those things right now. But it'd be fun to try to give ideas. But, <laughs> but anyway, so so there's so much more we could talk about. But I think we covered a lot of ground, and it's and wonderful. It's, Thank you. Yeah, it's always wonderful to see you, Arno, and and. Uh, oh, it was a great pleasure talking to you. Yeah. Well, well, thank you. Thanks, and and uh, uh, yeah, good luck with everything. Neurosalience is brought to you by the Organization for Human Brain Mapping. This week's episode was produced by Alfie Wine and Anastasia Brofkin.